welcome to UTRGV's School of Medicine, Careers in Medicine, Coffee to Go podcast. In today's episode, we will be talking to members of the class of 2022 who successfully matched into their programs of choice and what you could expect when it's your turn to match into the specialty of your dreams. We'll start with introductions. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming to the post match forum. Um, we're going to do introductions. So we'll do name, like where you're from, where you went for undergrad, what specialty you matched into, and where you're headed. So we'll kick it off with Adam. Sure. So I'm Adam. Uh, I am originally from Yoakum, Texas, which is close to Victoria, if anybody's familiar with the area. Uh, did undergrad, University of Texas, uh, grad school at Colorado State. And um, I applied to anesthesia and I matched into anesthesia at Emory in Atlanta. Awesome. Alif, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, hi, guys. I'm Alif. Uh, I'm from Houston. I went to Rice for undergrad and I will be going to UC Davis for psychiatry. Steph, do you want to go? Yes. Uh, my name is Stephanie. I grew up in the Houston area. I went to Baylor University for undergrad. I matched emergency medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Hi, Arib. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Arib. I grew up in Austin, Texas. Um, I went to undergrad at UT in Austin. Um, I applied internal medicine and I matched at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Cool. Um, I'm Sahar. I am. I grew up in Arizona, but now live in Sugarland, Texas. And I went to Emory University for undergrad, and I matched pediatrics at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So um, the way that this will work is that we have some preset questions that people had sent in. So we'll go through those. But if you have any questions that come up, you can either put them in the chat box or wait till the very end, and then we'll um, answer like any questions that anyone has. So the first question was like a general fourth year question is what did you consider when you were planning your fourth year um, and did you do any away rotations or what were you looking for um, in your schedule for fourth year? And Arib, do you want to start that off? Um, yeah, I guess it's like a multi-part question. Um, so I think like the main thing was I, I tried to look for a schedule where I could ha do my sub-I early and do my away early. So ideally all of that before my application was due. That was like a primary goal for me. And then my secondary goal was to do not so heavy or like uh, like time demanding rotations during interview season, which for internal medicine is like end of October to mid January. So like try to have everything virtual for the, for the most part um, and just like pretty laid back. And I know I was gonna be tired um from all from like the end of third year so that was like those were my primary goals and then from January to March I was like okay I just need to get with like over with my mandatory stuff so EM and those were like kind of the priorities um for me yeah anyone have anything different they took into consideration or looked at when they were making their schedules yeah so for me i wanted to move out of my apartment in the valley move back in with my parents save some money that way so the biggest consideration for me was getting all of my in-person stuff done in the first semester 
so that I could move out. So I did my sub eyes in there, emergency medicine, and then my away rotation as well in the first semester. So I had like research and virtual radiology and like months off for my second semester. So it, it was just been nice to have this like past six months to relax and also not pay rent coming in clutch now that I have to pay for stuff again. <laughs> yeah, I definitely back that up. Um, I would say that having the most time to chill the second semester and fourth year is easily the way to go. Um, it's kind of nice to get everything over with. It does make it kind of hard, uh, especially after you turn an ERAS and you're starting to get interviews because I guess in my case, I was still doing, I had like a couple of ICU rotations here that I was doing and it kind of made it difficult to schedule interviews uh, during those times because you're, you could be in kind of a heavier rotation and the interview slots, at least for anesthesia, I don't know how the other specialties were, but you could either schedule it through ERAS or through Thalamus, which is another app that a lot of programs will use. And the spots were filling up pretty quickly, um, sometimes within like 15, 30 minutes, um, dates would be completely gone. So for me, I did kind of miss out on definitely the chance to get my preferred days because I was on a heavier rotation um, during the months of like October and November. So that's also one thing to definitely consider too. I also, when I was making my schedule, I really tried to put something really light in October because I knew that's when the majority of interview invitations would come out and like you have to like be by your phone for all of those so I like put flex time during that time so I could like constantly just like look at my phone in case an inter um, interview invite came in and could just like schedule it without having to worry about having to go see a patient at that time or um, like having to do something that I just like couldn't get to my phone or like my computer in time. That was a big consideration for me as well. I think everyone here did away rotation. So do you all want to talk about your away rotation experience and then like how you decided where to do your away rotation or like what factors you took into consideration? Yeah, so I did my away rotation. I applied EM and I did my away rotation at Mount Sinai in New York. And I think the main, well, one, I kind of wanted like a busy trauma center. Um, but one of the main things that I tried to think about because we were only allowed emergency medicine, we were only allowed to do one away rotation because of COVID. Um, I wanted to get like geographically as far away from Texas as possible because when you're applying, um, schools really do take into account like any ties you have to an area. And so when you're applying to Texas schools, if you go to, if you went to a Texas medical school, obviously they know that you'll want to go there. But as far as New York, I, don't, I got so many interviews from the New York area and I know that I wouldn't have if I didn't do my way rotation there. And I think of it like um, all the program directors kind of know each other like in academic hospitals near nearby. And so like, if you got a letter of recommendation from your bestie, you're obviously going to like take that into account and give someone an interview. And so I would say like, go to California, go to New York, go to places where, the ties that you have might not be as obvious. Um, that's what I would say. Anyone have anything else that they'd like to share about away rotations or how they picked it? Or Ray, do you wanna do your intro where you where you matched, where you're from, where you went to undergrad, what specialty um, you're going into? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Ray, uh, fourth year, I matched orthopedic surgery. I did undergrad at University of Florida in Gainesville and a grad program in Drexel, uh, Drexel in Philadelphia. 
And then I bartended for a year before med school and then the rest is history, I suppose. Um, as far as like away rotation stuff, um, if you, if you, if you're, if you're a third year, you know, and you don't have a mentor now, you should really be pushing as hard as you possibly can to get one in the coming months. Um, I'm sure that everybody else already said this. And then like Stephanie was saying, like your mentors, like connections and stuff probably go a lot farther than your application money will. Like for instance, like I applied, I ended up matching at Cedars in LA and I, my mentor uh, was trained at Harvard and his, the person who trained him at Harvard is now the chair at Cedars. I didn't know that when I applied to the, uh, to the away rotation. And so I applied and he got accepted and I told him I was going to Cedars. And then my mentor was like, oh, I know so-and-so out there. And I was like, okay, cool. And so like, you know, so like you don't know who knows who, but it's a solid idea to establish a mentorship early. And if you can, if you're a second year or a first year and you can get like four or five people in your corner, that means that they each had an undergrad, they each had a, a med school, potentially grad school. And that's just a bunch of fingers for you to put out. So when it comes time for you guys to apply, you'll have that many more connections. And I think, I, I, I don't know if anyone mentioned this, but like one thing that I was like kind of intentional about my, my away rotation was like, I did my rotations. I mean, if you do them at Valley Baptist, it's like a community sized hospital. Um, and so there's a certain perception and certain understanding, certain experiences that you get from working in a community hospital. Um, or I guess I would call it a hybrid since there's residency programs, but I want, then I, and if I was going to apply broadly, I would have applied to a lot of academic programs. And so doing an away rotation in a really large hospital. So I did mine in, at WashU in St. Louis and uh, Barnes Jewish is like, just a, like a behemoth of a hospital, like a thousand beds, like it's huge. It takes like 30 minutes to walk across the campus. And I, and I just like having that experience and like getting the feel of it during my rotation is, is like, I think valuable. Um, because then you kind of already know before you apply, um, like what, which setting you like more. And um, so, yeah, that helps a lot in, in the application process, I think. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think if you're going into a surgical subspecialty specifically, like you'll have programs that'll be more people don't, I mean, don't use the words on your, with your mentors, but white collar versus blue collar. Um, and so I ended up doing uh, two aways. I did one at Southwestern, which is more traditionally blue collar. Like basically you get in the operating room earlier and they give you more autonomy earlier. And then white collar is a more traditionally, like basically based on like the Northeast kind of modality where like your first two years, you're learning how to take care of patients on the wards and you're basically doing all the bitch work using the language. And then three, four, and five is when they really get you in the OR and they start putting your tools in your hands and you start trying to figure out like, you know, what type of surgery you're interested in. And, but the, also the academics has the bonus of most likely having better connections for fellowship, better research opportunities, and generally speaking, better basics science research, like for instance, in ortho, like biomechanics is a big research field. Um, in ENT, it'd probably be like audiology or something like that. Um, so you keep those in mind as well. And I think um, we touched upon mentors as well. So does anyone want to talk about letters of recommendations and who you got them from and when you asked for letters of recommendation? Ali, if you want to kick it off. Can. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when I sent the letters. Uh, like, yeah, earlier, like in between, it's summer-ish, I guess like August, September is when I asked. And like some of them were super quick with it and like I didn't have to do reminders or anything. And then some of them just took longer and you kind of have to figure out like, oh, you're on vacation for two weeks. Let me just, you know, call your secretary and see like 
how we can get this done more quickly. Um, but so I asked Dr. Escalona, Dr. Escamilla, the psychiatry chair. I asked Dr. Fernandez, who is no longer with the school, but he's super accomplished. And he also like was my rotation advisor. And I've kept in touch with them after uh, as well. And then lastly, I had Dr. Amador, who was my, who I did the sub-I with for fourth year. Um, so I got, what, three psych letters and one pediatrics. And with Dr. Escalona, I never actually worked in a clinic. I, we just worked a lot for like school-related activities and she just wrote about that. So. Like it's good to have some personal touch in there. It's not just like, oh, she can take care of patients. You know, <laughs> so find people that you've actually worked with for through a couple of years, doesn't have to be clinical work. Yeah, and I think what helped for me too was, I think for anesthesia, we were allowed to submit four letters, but I knew I was probably only going to want to submit three. So I think I started asking, I want to say like June, July for my first letter. I got one letter from Dr. Canizaro, who's the, I think the internal medicine PD uh, at DHR. And then I got one letter from Dr. Kefamarian, who is sort of a pseudo faculty. He works a lot with medical students at Valley Baptist. Um, he's an anesthesiologist. And then I do for my third letter, I, I was kind of banking on getting it from my away rotation that I had set up for September. So it, it almost kind of ended up biting me in the ass because I was kind of banking on that. And ERAS is due like October 15th. So it's, it, was, it would have been better for me to have a backup letter that I may not necessarily have wanted to submit, but I, I should have probably asked another faculty just to have it in my back pocket, just submit, because especially if you're trying to get a letter from a program director, they're busy enough as it is. So writing, they're probably already writing like 10, 15, 20 letters at a time. So if you know you're going to be kind of waiting for an away rotation letter later in the cycle, try to get at least the minimum three letters before you go into that rotation. Because at least for me, the, my last letter came in midnight before ERAS opened. So it was a very incredibly stressful few hours. Um, and had I had that backup letter, I think it would have made that a lot easier, but it worked out. But just kind of keep that in mind too, if you're waiting on a letter later in the cycle. I have to second Adam's thing. Cause I think he was on, uh, we were on like surgical or gen search sub I at DHR when I got yeah. my last letter, like six hours prior to it being due. <laughs> um, and, you know, funnily enough, my last letter was actually from a UCRGV faculty member. So like, it doesn't matter where, you know what I mean? Like try and like, like reach out early. So like my, I told my mentor in like December, right. And he had my letter to me by January. Right. And then he had it uploaded like right after. So he was super quick. And then I went on my first away rotation in August and the PD turned that letter around super fast. And so that was uploaded. So I was waiting on one. And then so then I did my second away rotation and I talked to the PD and asked for a letter and he said he would write me one. So then I was waiting on is, is it going to be the ECRGB faculty first? Is it going to be the PD from another school entirely? Um, I know that especially in like some of the uh, surgical subspecialties, you know, they, they want to see only ortho letters or only ENT letters or whatever. So like in that, and since we don't have uh, a large like faculty base there on those like specialties, you have to, you're going to have to like, it's kind of going to come down to the wire. You're going to have to like 
you know, kick ass on your rotation and go ask early and hope that they're willing. Um, if you guys are doing or looking at something like where you have to have only letters from one specialty, like I would definitely recommend like doing what Adam and uh, Elise said and oversend it. Ask as many people as you can. But once again, make sure that you're not just asking people just to ask them, um, especially for like ortho, like they put out a new thing this year where like they have, they, they rate you clinically, they rate you on your research ability, they rate you like it's there's like a zero to 100% scale on like eight or nine different things. Plus, then there's a written letter. So like letters like that, like if you don't, if you don't have anything, like there is an NA option, but that doesn't necessarily look good if you only have three letters and then half of your shit is NA, excuse me, half of your stuff is NA. It's not the best, uh, it's not the best look for you. So, you know, try to have some connection with those people before you submit, depending on your specialty, obviously. Yeah, I asked for my letters super early. I think I asked for my two from Dr. Dr. Nelson and Dr. Escalona, who are both pediatrics. I asked for those in like January or February of third year, just because I also needed a letter for my um, away rotation applications. So I asked Dr. Escalona super early and I also kind of like told Dr. Nelson that I like would ask him for a letter and he's like, oh yeah, like I'll write you one. So I didn't have to like formally ask again. And then my third letter I got from Dr. Chapa who is a surgical breast oncologist at DHR. And I'd worked with her in my surgery rotation in November and December. So I actually ended up asking her in January so that she would keep it in mind because she would then like actually remember who I was. And I didn't want it to be like June and like have me ask her and be like, oh, she like, I didn't want her to be like, oh, I like don't actually remember like what you did or anything. So we just kept in contact until about like June, which is when we met to like talk about my CV and like what programs I was applying to and what I was interested in. So I would highly recommend like if you are in third year and you do a rotation where you really get along with the faculty, like ask them for that letter and be like, hey, like I'm just like, like asking you now, like I know it's a while away, but I want you to write me a recommendation letter if you feel like you could write me a strong recommendation letter and like most of the time they'll say yes and then just keep in contact with them so that they remember who you are um, and don't just like let that sit until like june or july and like have them forget you possibly anyone else have anything else to say about recommendation letters mentors anything like that before we move well, on i guess i guess like one thing that i did that ended up being like super beneficial which didn't know how much it was going to help was that um, I made just like a, a one page like Microsoft Word thing and that I sent to all my letter writers. Um, and it was like, you know, my my academics, like my scores, my step one score, what clerkships I honored um, or whatever. And then I had my clinical interests and like things that I was interested in the future and like where what I want to do in the future. So I had like a little bullet points of that. And then I had um, bullet points of clinical interactions potentially I had with each one of them um, and like the settings I work with them in. And if I have to say that any, any part of my application that I felt like stood out in interviews was my recommendation letters. Like the stuff that people were potentially writing that I don't know about was super, super valuable because almost every um, institution that I interviewed at brought up my letters as like a remark. Um, and they said, oh, wow, like all your faculty members like spoke like super highly of you. And so, I mean, I don't know if I personally knew everyone that well. I mean, you only have so much interactions with them and like, sure, they can like kind of like, you know, boost it up a little bit when they're writing, but like having personal interactions with them that they can refer to because they don't remember. They, they talk to tons of students and they mentor tons of students. So like easy references for them like that are written down can be helpful because I think Zoom interactions 
like you'll you'll talk to them and be like, oh, I'm interested in this, but they won't remember when they're writing. And so like having definitively having something in front of them that they can reference, like your CV and stuff, helps them a lot. Um, so that's one thing to do the legwork early on that and have that prepared before you ask them for a letter of recommendation. Because the moment they said yes to me, I was like, okay, I'll forward you my CV and this one page document of like um, things that you can include in my letter of recommendation if you feel it's appropriate. Um, yeah, so I think that can help you. Yeah, and most people will ask, uh, all my letter writers ask for my CV and a personal statement. So it's also good to kind of have, I kind of felt pressured to sort of have a personal statement ready. I didn't really have one ready at the time that my first letter writer said yes. So just kind of a heads up that they will want like some additional information about you because they work with a lot of students. So they need something to jog their memory. That's a great segue into personal statements. How did you go about writing your personal statement? and? Um, when did you start working on it? Did you only write one draft and you were like, this is perfect? Or did you have to go through multiple cycles of drafts? How did that all go? Steph, do you want to start? Yeah, I also um, didn't write my personal statement until one of my letters, letter writers asked me for it. So I was I was in my away rotation at the time and I just like sat in a Starbucks and pumped it out. Um, I sent it to, so like the first draft I sent it to my letter writer, he wrote it, Dr. Falkoff. And then second, um, I sent it to Dr. Fish and he was like, yeah, this is way too long, cut it out. <laughs> so I like hacked it. Um, I think I, like I wrote about, I remember writing about like the current rotation I was in, in New York and then how it like differed from growing up in Texas. And then I also wrote about like, obviously why I wanted to go into emergency medicine and kind of like I wrote kind of about like health disparities um kind of tied it into what COVID was doing and so yeah I think I don't know I feel like it's hard to try to like advise you what to write in your personal statement because it's kind of like what you're passionate about and like what you can talk about because letter interviewers will bring it up and so if you've like depleted your knowledge base on that particular particular subject in your um in your personal statement then you can't like can't go into a tangent during your interview which everyone loves tangents in interviews <laughs> um yeah so I think I would just say write what you're passionate about um like medicine isn't the end all be all you're like a person underneath your medical knowledge and we're, yeah, we're all going to be great doctors, but what else are you going to do? And like, what else are you passionate about? So think about that, drink some coffee, sit in the Starbucks and write your personal statement. I definitely went through multiple drafts of my personal statement, but my personal statement was also brought up in almost every interview. I don't know if this was just peds, but a lot of times for um, faculty that are interviewing, um, they won't have seen the rest of your application. Like the only things that they'll see are your CV and your personal statement. So like, that's really all they know about you. So that's like what you have to give them. They don't know your scores. They don't know anything about your grades. Um, so a lot of times my personal statement was brought up during my um, interviews because my first sentence of my personal statement was my dad makes babies because he's an embryologist. And that was just the first sentence. And that got a laugh out of everyone. So I would always get a comment and be like, oh, like I started laughing when I was reading your personal statement. And then they would talk about something that they read in my personal statement. So I would like highly recommend starting to work on your personal statement like a little bit earlier on the beginning of fourth year, just because I also remember Dr. Fish asking for it for the MSPE. When you meet for your dean's letter, they do ask you for a copy of your personal statement. So just like have something 
that you can send with that as well. Um, and then also get a lot of feedback from um, like your faculty, your mentors. I also sent it to two alumni. I sent it to Bain and then Matt Hidalgo, who were like super happy to read it and give me edits. And that really helped me with just flow because I had looked at it for so long and I thought it made sense. But then they were like, hey, like this seems kind of choppy. Like maybe you should expand more on this. Like people probably want to hear more about this and not this. So that was just really nice to have a lot of eyes on it. But like, of course, like make sure that you're happy with it um, and don't let like other people tell you what to write, because sometimes it's not what like you actually sound like or what you want to um, put on for your personal statement. So just like kind of find that good balance. But it's always good to have feedback um, and edits from a lot of different people that might know you and they might know you through different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be like they all know you through med school. You could even find people from outside med school to be like, hey, like, does this sound okay? Like, does this sound reasonable? Does it sound like someone who's like competent and would be a great addition to a residency program? Any other insight on personal statements? I do want to say that you do want to make it like kind of interesting because it does come up a lot, especially if you like, like for you, it was like funny, right? For them to read it. For me, I like had a personal story and I kind of left it kind of vague. So a lot of my interviewers will be like, oh, so like what happened? Like, how did that, you know, resolve? Or, you know, they would have further questions about my, so, and they would remember that they're like this pers uh, personal statement was like, oh, kind of vague. Like, oh, did you do that intentionally? And it's like, yes, I did that intentionally. So we can, you know, talk about it <laughs> and you remember me and it works. Uh, so like make it interesting. It's not just like, oh, like I've been here. I've done this. I've seen this. I want to do this, but also like, your personality and something to be um, you know, aware of is like, obviously it's great to have a lot of people's opinions on your personal statement, but it doesn't mean that just because like someone didn't like it, someone told you to change it, that you need to. If it's true to you and true to yourself, like if it's staying true to yourself, just stick with it. If it feels good, it feels good. You know, as long as it's not, you know, someone is like, this is not gonna get you accepted anywhere, then maybe take that advice. And I think like, uh, that's like, Ali brings up a good point. It's like leaving, leaving it open-ended is okay. You don't have to resolve every story. You don't have to like resolve every like clinical anecdote. It's okay to like leave it. It doesn't have to have like, you know, a storybook ending at the end of the day. It's like to make the person kind of be like, oh, this person is interesting. Like, I'd love to like talk to them. They're like, so, and, and if you read like any novels, I mean, that's a good way to start too, is like read a novel and, um, you know, a popular one that's like a New York Times bestseller right now and see like how they write and how they leave things open-ended and I think that's a really interesting writing style um, that people can catch on to the one the one tip that I would give is like find the hobby or thing about you that is different it does and the, I'm, I'm talking about like not school related like whether it's I don't know you like playing chess or there's not that many people that are going to write about chess in their personal statement like there's not that many people that are going to write about, I don't know, like growing plants. Like it might be a couple hundred in the nation, but like the chances are that some of that person that's reading it is not going to like read someone else's that's similar. And I think finding that little bit of uniqueness um, about yourself. And I think everyone does, you just have to kind of dig deep and figure out what that is like introspectively um, that can help you a lot. That's like my one, one tip. I think don't just, don't just write about like clinical anecdotes. Like find the thing that's interesting about you. Um, and because they're gonna see all your CV and stuff and um, that's gonna speak for itself. Um, so that's one tip. And then the other thing is think about your application like thematically. 
um, don't be like writing about your personal statement about something that's totally different than your experiences, if that makes sense. Like kind of like contradicts your experience. Like, oh, like I'm interested in, you know, like health disparities, but like all of your stuff doesn't really apply to that, you know? And like, that's something it has to kind of complement your CV too, like the interests that you talk about. Um, so think about it thematically. I think Dio gave me that, that, that piece of advice and um, that really helped. Um, hey, did you want to say something? Yeah, no, I, I think everybody is giving all uh, phenomenal advice. I think um, also like about the whole staying true to yourself thing. Like if somebody, especially a peer of yours is giving you edit advice, I would take edit advice, like using them as a thesaurus, right? Like maybe don't use and here, maybe use as well. You know, that kind of advice is probably something that from your classmate you could take and you could incorporate pretty easily. But if your classmate is like, oh, this whole paragraph's trash, like, I don't know, whole, you know, pump the brakes, don't necessarily like remove your stuff. I personally found it was easier for me to like write everything out on paper first. So like, I think it was like November. It was one day, I think Adam and Matt were grilling outside or something and I just sat outside um, and, literally had my little ring notebook. I think Mallory was there and Irma was there. And I just sat outside and just wrote stuff down for like a couple hours um, and then went inside and didn't look at it for like four months. And then I went back and looked at it again. And I was like, okay, like three of these paragraphs are solid and probably don't need a lot of edits. And then the beginning, I have no idea how I'm starting this thing. And I have no idea how, um, you know, I'm going to segue to my conclusion because I had a conclusion paragraph and I had two solid body paragraphs. And so then I was like, okay, now I have a targeted approach to this. And I also got asked by a couple of people like, hey, can you send me a rough draft for whether it was MSP or letter writing or whatnot? So like, I think, you know, that's probably a solid deal. I think Arib has a phenomenal like thing. For instance, I talked about, I like worked, I worked um, training jujitsu into orthopedics and talked about how it relates clinically and understanding how pathology, it's like if a joint goes the wrong way, like, you know, there's like a tactile thing there. So if you, like you said, like if you're, if you're a chess, you know, a chess player and, and you're here trying to figure out like some crazy autoimmune disease or something like that, you know, like you could definitely figure out a way to artfully and colorfully incorporate that. Um, but I think the personal statement is, is like, I think that everybody told me, and I don't know if this is specific, I don't know if this is different in other specialties, but they told me for ortho, there's like, there's like the, there's like the 95 or the 90 and five rule. It's like, uh, it's like 90% of personal statements, if they're like in the middle or they're not super great or they're super bad, they're just all right, it's not going to hurt or harm you. If it's a super great personal statement, it could potentially like give you that next little bump, you know, or catch another person's eye. But if it's really bad, it could sink you. So like, don't worry about being the best personal statement ever they've ever read. Just make sure you're not in the bottom 5%. Don't make it like horror. Don't make it hard to read. Don't make it bad. Um, that was my advice I was given by my mentors. Um, we're going to move on to the next thing, which still relates to personal statements, but general like ERAS application. Does anyone have any tips on ERAS, um, how y'all tackled it? And then also kind of going into that, how did you figure out which programs to apply to? Was there anything specific that you were looking for? Ask the people who came before you. I asked Patrick. Patrick told me he's like last year, the average number of applications was 80. He's like, I submitted 60 and he's like, I wish I'd submitted 40, you know? And like, I mean, if you submit, like, I think there's 193 ortho programs. If you submit to all of them, that's like $7,000, you know? I think I submitted to like 54 at the end of the day after it was all said and done. And that was still like almost two grand. 
you know and i know just like for some people like if you have like if you have the money spend it you know what i mean because you can open up doors for yourself but if you don't have the money like you know like understand like your mentor connections that's why connections are so big like you have regional connections you do in a way in texas you know what i mean you've you've proven to them that you were willing to go there your mentor works at a hospital in texas that's another connection so like you have a strong texas tie at that point but for me applying to california was kind of like off the cuff i went and did the away there so that helped to open up some opportunities out there but if i had just applied with no connections you know what i mean that would have probably been more of kind of a shot in the dark um like i for instance applied to a few northeast programs um but i didn't do an away there and i had minimal connections up there and i got very little feedback but in ortho the northeast generally tends to take people who trained in the northeast for med school you know, so like figuring out those regional differences. And that's why I say talk to the people who came before you, because they all have probably already sussed it out and been like, okay, like if you're from XYZ region, you know what I mean? Historically speaking, they don't play ball with this other region. So like, it may not be worth your thousand dollars for you applying 30 programs there or something. Yeah, I think it's just kind of important to, it seems so early to think about this, but kind of figure out what you, what kind of environment you see yourself training in. Like for me, like I knew that I wasn't going to want to go to a rural program. I wasn't really going to go to a small community program. Like I wanted to go to a program that was going to mean a big city, high case volume, lots of trauma, lots of acuity, and a really diverse patient population. So that kind of eliminates a lot of the United States that's outside of a big city. So for me, it was kind of easy to pick the programs that I wanted to, but I do kind of feel like now that everything's, I mean, it doesn't seem like interviews are not going to be online anymore. It really doesn't hurt to maybe over apply at least from my at least from my perspective I know everybody probably has differing opinions but I think it probably is a better idea to almost over apply because I, I think I applied to like 45 programs and whenever I was getting feedback from upperclassmen who had applied the years before they almost said that was too much because in their experience they didn't feel like that was a lot of programs but for me 45 was basically you're kind of going through all the ERAS programs you're kind of, I almost eliminated them based on geography alone. So for me, that's what was important. But I think what also kind of helped me to going through the ERAS process was it's not a luxury that everybody's going to have, but if you can have someone that you trust who can, who you can give access to your ERAS account or your Thalamus account, who could help you schedule your interviews for you, um, that is a huge plus, especially if you don't think you're always going to be able to be near your computer. Um, like for me, for my example, my fiance was able to help me out a ton. She actually, I think, ended up scheduling half my interviews because I was stuck in the ICU or stuck in another interview or something else. So if you have someone that you know and trust, even like a friend or a colleague that can, you can give them your information to help you schedule your interviews, that's, that's huge. It's like having an extra set of hands. I think in terms of programs, I over-applied um, and I probably didn't have to apply to that many for PEDS, but my worry was that since interviews were online, um, I think more people were over-applying just because you didn't have to travel for interviews, so that cost kind of cut down. And in hindsight, I probably didn't need to apply to that many, but I think it made me feel better and it made me feel a little less anxious about the process, so I think it was fine. Um, but I think moving forward, I don't really know how interviews are going to be. I think a lot of programs are thinking about staying online and like doing like in-person second looks or something like a hybrid type of version. So I'm going to guess that people are probably still going to be applying to quite a few programs. But like my one piece of advice for all of pretty much like all of fourth year would be like to watch where your money's going. 
because away rotations you have to pay to apply you have to pay to apply for um eras you have to pay to like for step two that's a like a good chunk of money but then a lot of people forget that you also need money saved up for the end of fourth year because you're going to be moving and your financial aid is going to stop in may so you're not going to get the financial aid for july or like june and july that you would and like if any of you were on here before we were talking about like when we get our first paychecks and stuff and like moving is a lot it's really expensive so like you need to be able to like kind of have a budget that you can use for like may and june when you're trying to move a lot of places will ask for deposits um if you're trying to get an apartment so you need to have money to put a deposit down um so like a lot of times you'll hear about people taking out like private loans just to be able to move at the end of fourth year um and that is like a very real thing so start thinking about that now even if you're in first year start thinking about where you might be able to start saving some money um, one of our classmates who's moving to Boston was saying something about how her deposit is like 6000 and her rent is like not even that much. Like it's ridiculous. Um, and the housing like market is rent. like absolutely insane. So like make sure that you're kind of looking at that as you're going um, and kind of saving the money where you can. But like for me personally, like when I was applying to programs, I like did not look at the cost until like I had finalized what programs I was applying to. I was just like, where can I apply that's going to make me feel okay? Um, and like Adam mentioned, I was also looking for like a big academic center because I want to do a fellowship after. So I was really looking at fellowship match rates for programs that I was applying to where people match for fellowship. I was looking to see if like I was like on the, the program's Instagram pages looking to see if the residents actually looked happy there or not, because that was super important to me. So I was like, I don't want to go to a place where no one hangs out with each other. I'm like too social for that. And I don't want to go to a place where I'm going to be sad or like by myself all the time. So those were kinds of, kind of some things that I was looking at. Um, and like Adam mentioned, having someone to help you like monitor your email during interview times is so helpful because I actually put both my parents on there and they like called me at 6 a.m. one day. They're like, do you have an invite? And I had to like get out of bed and like schedule it. So they were super helpful for that. Even like having someone else in like a different time zone can help because they might be up earlier than you or like it kind of just works out that way. Another thing to look at that I didn't like realize until like midway through the interview season is like look at the faculty members and what their positions are. Like look at the um, his departments within the program. For instance, there is a few um, like a few emergency medicine programs that didn't have like a diversity, equity, inclusion um, department. And like for emergency medicine. Like I can see that going in other specialties, but like for emergency medicine, where you see like a large uninsured population base, it's like, I, I thought that was a little bit unacceptable. And, but that's like something that I'm interested in and especially like health policy and things like that. Does your program have like any, yeah, like look at the um, fellowship opportunities that that um, institution has. And if they don't have one, that's fine. But to their residents match at any um, at any fellowships that you're interested in. Um, because like there are some programs that were like, yeah, we would love to like, like they're supportive and they'll say, oh, we'll, we'll support you in that. And we'll like, if you wanna head that up, go ahead. Like, but residency is hard and you don't wanna, like, I'm not going to start your diversity and equity inclusion program. That's a lot. Um, so just make sure that your, whatever your particular interests in, in your field, make sure they're like supported within the institution that you're applying to. And that's, I mean, that's kind of hard to look up 
depending on how many programs you're applying to like but it's I think it's worth it and especially at least like when you're accepting invites look at that look at that <laughs> there's a lot of um one of my one of my um requirements for accepting an interview at a program that I quickly learned I needed to do is do they have one black person and for a lot of programs the answer was no there was no black people so just like make sure that make sure that you fit in the program that you're applying to just make sure you get fit as far as diversity and inclusion goes too, um, a lot of programs, you're right, don't have that as like a thing that they're like championing, especially depending on the specialty you're applying to. But also keep in mind that if you do end up in a big city, there are tons of nonprofit organizations that you being a young MD, especially if you're a person of color and young, they will be overjoyed to have you come to a talk at a school or whatever, and you can keep pushing that you know, envelope. And then that way, if your program finally catches up in your third year or whatever, then you can hop on that. But if you do want to do that, like, you know, you just want to go and make sure that you're helping to make a difference. Like that's also an option. But if you do want to see a program with a black person and there's no black people step, I get that. <laughs> that that's fair. You know? Yeah. For orthopedic um, surgery. Okay. Totally makes sense. For emergency <laughs> medicine, not, not, <laughs> but like also, yeah, if you want to, like if you feel like you have the bandwidth to head up something, like even if it's not diversity, if it's like, I don't know, what are you guys passionate about? If it's like- Emergency medicine- Wellness. If it's yeah. wellness, if you if there's no wellness program and you're like, oh yeah, I have the bandwidth to bat, like to start that, then go ahead and do it. It's like, it'll be amazing and you'll get lots of, I guess, accolades and you'll have a lot of like people cheering you on, but you don't have the bandwidth. Just, just like ask yourself, do I have the bandwidth? The answer is yes, good for you. For me, it was no. I think that's fair. I think you're being, like, I think that's kind of something that a lot of us as residents are gonna have to get, you know, it's like in medical school, we're able to wear a lot of hats, but when it come time for residency, when, when you're starting to really, you know, like 80 hours, right? Like quote unquote, like, yeah, maybe that's what you put down so your program doesn't get mad at you. You know, but like, who knows what you're actually going to be putting in, um, you know, like, yeah, that bandwidth thing is real. I think being able to talk to yourself on like a level playing field and like really look in the mirror and be like, is this something that's going to make my life better? Or is this just something that I'm going to add to my plate and I'm going to start drowning as a result? Because I now have to, you know, create this poster and I have to be here on Saturday, but Saturday is my only day off and I'm post call and I don't want to do it because I haven't gotten groceries in a week and I, my laundry's nasty. Like, you know, that's fair. Like, I think Steph makes a very real point. I think being real with yourself is something that I need to get better at doing and, <laughs> and start looking at that more objectively. I need to learn how to say no. I don't know how to do that yet. But kind of going off of that, well, um, does anyone have any like last like pieces of advice or piece of wisdom to um, say about kind of applying to residency, medical school, anything like that before we move on to questions from the people that are here? Okay, I have one more thing. For the ERAS application, this is like really like annoying. And like, I thought about this for a long time. It's like bullet points versus paragraphs in your, in your ERAS applications, like a huge topic of contention. You know what, I realize it doesn't really matter. Uh, at the end of the day, do what you feel like is better for you. I was a bullet point person worked out for me. There's people that I knew that applied and did like eloquent paragraphs. Um, I think brevity is like the soul of wit. So be brief, um, be like clear. You don't have to write like tons and tons and there's gonna be character limits, but um, 
yeah, I did, I did bullet points and it, it was fine. Um, and it, I could just copy and paste from my CV. And so that was, that was super, that was super awesome. Um, and then like the application number, I have like, I have a pretty strong opinion about this. I think over apply rather than under apply. I'm going to be crazy. I was crazy. And I applied to 59 programs as an internal medicine applicant and people would call me crazy, but there was programs that I thought I was going to get an interview from in Texas and I did not. And there was programs in the Northeast that I didn't think I was ever going to get an interview from. And I did. So especially at the top end of academic programs, they're very highly sought after. So if you're interested in, you know, something that's, you know, just like an Ivy league or whatever has a really strong reputation, um, throw your name for a lot of those programs because the likelihood of you getting those interviews is very low um, because there's a tons of people wanting those interviews. So just know that I think that's something to keep in mind. I think that's pretty in self. I mean, that's intuitive and most people already know that, but yeah. Yeah. Kind of to jump off that, I would say just shoot your shot. Cause I mean, like my personally, like my step one score was below the average for anesthesia applicants and it was below the average for the incoming uh, Emory residence class and it worked out. And I think the same could be said for several other interviews that I was very surprised that I've got. So you never really know what they're looking for in your application. So if, even if you think that you're kind of like, if you don't really consider yourself like a really strong applicant, I wouldn't say don't let that stop you from applying to a lot of the bigger programs. Yeah, I got a second that with Adam. Same. I like one of my one of the interns at my away rotation was like oh maybe don't apply to like the big name programs and so I kind of took his advice except I applied to like one IV and I got an interview there so don't sell yourself short like you're you're a baddie don't let anyone tell you you're not a baddie you are I promise you yeah the answer is always no if you don't ask I think is like like words to live by, you know, it's always, yeah, leave no stone unturned. You need a job. <laughs> you got debt. Maybe not, but still you need a job. Like you didn't do this for no reason. Might as well shoot your shot. Dude, shoot your shot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot your shot. And like, it's, I know it might feel expensive, but it's like probably the most valuable money you're going to spend in medical school on the number of programs you're going to apply to. So like if you need to, I know this is bad financial advice. If you need to take out, credit card, whatever, like, like, I, I think it's worth it. Like, if you told me like nine months ago, I'd be at Johns Hopkins, like, it'd be like, you're fucking lying to me. <laughs> so um, it's, it's very much a real thing. Like, shoot your shot. Yeah, I definitely borrowed money to apply. <laughs> my, my mother paid for my residency application. So it's gonna be, it's gonna be costly, but do it. It's worth it. Steph, I'm here to tell you in about 10 years, you're not going to, you're not going to be worried about that in the slightest. <laughs> you're not even going to remember that crap. Literally in like two years. I'd be like, who cares? Right. She's like, I'm already over it. It's fine. <laughs> Low-key I am. Also, just as a reminder, when you do the interviews, uh, like check with yourself right after how you feel about that interview day. Because in a few months, you're gonna forget, like when you, when the ranking starts, you're gonna forget how you felt that day. So like, it's good to have like a notebook that you like jot down your thoughts on right after the interview. Cause like my UC Davis interview, I felt amazing afterwards. And like afterwards when I was doing my ranking, like I had to go back to that because before then, like I had better uh, ranking programs 
uh, like Northeast, also Texas, but like at the end of the day, I had to go somewhere I wanted to go and like knew that I would fit in. So like, it's important that you remember those. It's not just the statistics that you're going after. So like find your fit. If you're applying to a program that's got a really small uh, historic number of interviews, right? So like orthopedics, like I think, I think last year, like the average number for people who matched was like 11 to 13, right? I only had seven guys. So like I was below the average. So what I did for myself knowing that is I was like, okay, I wanted to take this whole deal. Like, I don't know if those like sending the thank you emails works or not. Right. But if half the field's doing it and somebody out there just wants to add another screen, they can do it. But I, I only sent them to like a few, but what I did do for each and every one is I took notes during the interview. Like I had, and I had, and I had pre-review and they, they send you your schedule. So what I did is I went and found the specialty, found like a little bit of the research, just read up on everybody I'd be talking to. So like, I didn't like open with stuff about them, but I knew it. Right. So like when they were asking me questions, I had already pre-reviewed all their stuff. I already knew what their research was on. I knew where they trained and I'd written out a few questions, like two to three for each person. So I had program specific questions and then I had interviewer specific questions and I had like a box grid that I wrote out in like, you know, not eight by 11 paper. And so like when I was in my interview, there was never any like, there was never like a time for a lull because I, I felt like, especially in the Zoom conversations, because it could be construed as awkward and it's sort of a weird medium and it's all new. I figured any downtime was not good time. So I wanted to be sure that I had something ready to fire off at all times. You know, if it, if it started to go sideways, hopefully it would never. Right. But it was just, it ended up coming in handy once or twice, but for the most part, you probably won't need it, but it's better to have it. So then you have that confidence sitting there in the interview. That's like a great point. At least 25 to 30% of your interview day will be them giving you time to ask questions. And it can get really awkward if there's like, uh, like the, the interview slot is 15 minutes. They talk for five minutes and then like, okay, any questions and for 10 minutes, you're just sitting there like, oh, nope, that's it. So I think, yeah, what Ray said, I would, um, I would like look up the people interviewing you because they give you your schedule like the day before, the week before, they give you like the list of people who are interviewing you. A quick Google search can tell you like where they went to school. Some people like trained abroad, you can ask about that. Um, but definitely have like, just like a list of go-to questions that you can always ask um, because ugh, they just have to ask so many questions. And you like, the most important thing during an interview is like looking interested. And even if it's like, the last place on your list you better act interested you better act like you want to be there and just be like grateful that they took the time to like get to know you yeah just get a list of questions and you can google like some questions i found a list of like 200 questions and i got like my favorite like six or seven that i would ask um so yeah just keep that in mind because i didn't know that for my first interview that it was mostly questions and i asked some i had some bad questions <laughs> so just like keep that in mind and remember, if you went on your way to a place, your questions should be wildly different than the questions you asked to a program you didn't rotate at. If you ask every program the same questions, it means you're not thinking before you go in there. Because if you work there for a month, you should know most of this. You should be asking them questions about like, uh, what did you do, do last Saturday? Hopefully you made some good connections and you know people by name. Like that kind of stuff is important, I think. And it's like those soft skills is the stuff that they can't teach you in school, but they will serve you well. I also think for me, for interviews, it was like a lot of fourth year, I felt like I didn't have much control 
just because like you apply, but it's not like you can be like, oh, I want an interview here. Like I'm going to get this interview because it's kind of just up to them. So to kind of keep like a sense of control still, um, I like really just wanted my interview environment to be something that I just like knew would work and that I wouldn't have to worry about. So like I made sure my background was exactly what I wanted it to be. I had my ring light so I could control the lighting and I would never have to worry about like like lighting issues or the sun being down or raining outside. And like, same thing with internet. I always made sure my internet was like working and like, like always had that just so I could have some kind of like control over the day because you never really know how an interview day is gonna go. It could go the way that you imagined it to, but it could also just go a completely different way. Um, you could get pimped during an interview. That definitely happened to me once I got pimped about like UTIs and I was like, this is not what I was like here for. Um, or you can show up to an interview slot that's 20 minutes long and the person's like, okay, I have no questions, ask me questions. And like, you have to have questions to ask them. So like interview days are a little bit unpredictable or you sit there for like seven hours just staring at your screen, like smiling because you have to like watch like tour videos and like do all this other stuff. So like a lot of the stuff, like try to keep control of the things you can control. So you know that you don't have to worry about those and like you still have like some like semblance of the situation. And then my other thing for when you're making your rank list after you interview, know that you could end up anywhere on your rank list. Like just because your number one is your number one does not mean you're going to end up there. Um, and I think that's something that's super important to think about. Like think about like where you're actually ranking and is it something that you actually like want to be at? I know for me personally, I was fine with going anywhere. I think in my top like seven or eight. After that, I would have been fine too. But like my top seven or eight, I was like, yeah, like if I end up anywhere in here, I will be happy. And I think that's something that's really important to think about because you don't want to get your hopes up for one program because you never know what match day is going to go like. Um, so always keep in mind that like you could end up anywhere on your rank list. You could end up at your first choice. You could end up at your eighth choice. You could end up at like your 20th choice. So make sure that you are ranking programs that you genuinely want to be at and not just ranking them for the sake of like ranking. Um, because come match day, like wherever you match is where you end up. There's not really like a choice. Um, so you want to make sure that you are actually going to a program that you could see yourself at or, you know, like do well at and be okay being there. Um, I was going to, I don't know if this has been broached already, but did you guys talk about during specialty selection, if you apply a backup or not? Anybody broached like touch that? Did anybody here apply to a backup program? Okay, me either. Then we shouldn't talk about it because I don't know anything about it. I was just wondering if anybody else did, if they had insight on that. Um, but sorry. I was just gonna say it's like Echo Sahar's first point. Buy like buy a high definition camera, buy a ring light buy some cute like art in the background, buy a plant. I think literally like my whole aesthetic during interview season, like no matter how stressed out I was, I could like look at my screen and be like, oh yeah, I look great. Or like everything around me looks good. So even if like, even if everything I'm saying is a hot mess, like I look presentable, like I have the, like my video is the best and <laughs> Like, so, like my video is the best um, compared to all these people that I'm interviewing with. Um, it's like, so my camera was like $150. My ring light was like $20. And like, if you think about how much money you would have spent if you were like flying out somewhere, that's like one flight. So just like buy, buy some stuff, make sure you look good. I think it, it's like, it's really worth it, I would say. 
I am team broke boy and I didn't buy shit. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't know. buy anything. This is what I look like on interview day. I mean, I, I had a suit off, but that's it. I had like, a, I had like, like a, really a desk lamp, but that was it. <laughs> I'm just telling you, the like ego boost it got me, it gave me looking so good. I was like, yeah, I'm a baddie. Like, just tell yourself all <laughs> you the time, are. you are a baddie. <laughs> it really helps. I, I just like, I don't know. I really like pretty things. I always say like, I'm not good at a lot of, at a lot of things but what I'm good at is making things look pretty and so I was like going in with that attitude I'm gonna make everything look pretty and that's gonna make me feel better girl if I ever, ever need uh stitches in an ER I'm coming to you <laughs> I got you you look flawless um I definitely bought into what Steph was saying I got a ring light a laptop stand I got this painting and this plant for interviews this was my interview setup right here minus the ring light I am selling it all if anyone wants it but um I think it just really helped me knowing that I was like in an environment that I like looked put together and I didn't look like a mess. Like I had the lighting, everything was good. The painting was in the back. I looked somewhat artistic. I got questions about if I painted it and I was like, no, I got questions of the plant, like what kind of plant it was. And I was like, it's fake, but like I had it together, you know? Yeah. I got but, like, so many compliments on like my look. And once I was, there was one day I had a smoothie when I, during my interview and they're like, oh my gosh, your aesthetic is everything. I'm like, yes, it is everything. And invite me to your program and I'll make you just like me. Um, um, but the library does have things that you can check out. I'll just like put in a quick plug for SGE in the library. There are like interview kits that you can um, rent out. They have backdrops, they have the ring light, the laptop stand, the webcams, like everything. So you can also get those from the library and do like your interview at home or in one of the library rooms, which I think a lot of people did do interviews in the library rooms, which are another like great place to do an interview if you're looking for one. Yeah, I'd say the most important thing is just that you have strong Wi-Fi connection as long as you're not getting cut off and you're not freezing all the time. Even then they're super like most programs are very, you know, understanding that the situation is not ideal that we're having these like Zoom interviews, but as long as you have good Wi-Fi, I think you'll be fine. You don't need to spend the money, but hey, if it feels you good, make you feel good and like you feel confident on interview day, do it. Do look, it. Yeah, <laughs> look presentable, but just know that like you're going to see, you know, like those school jackets we have, like the Patagucci ones, you're, half your interviewers are going to be sitting in those. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be the 15th interview they got of the day. Like, and like some of them, some of them, like they said, that, that, is, that is to be fair. Like you want to look put together. On my, one of my interviews, uh, actually at UNLV, um, I did the whole first interview and I realized at the break time that I did not have a jacket on and I just had a white shirt and a tie. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like I would say that I would have to agree with Sahar and Stephanie and Alif and everybody else that a little preparation probably goes a long way. Um, you know, like definitely take a look in the mirror prior but I mean, you know, that, I mean, I don't think that'll make or break your interview, you know, but like definitely like taking that little extra bit to be put together, probably a good call. <laughs> Since we're on interviews, like my tip is like, you got to bring the energy yourself. There's a lot of interviewers that will not like have a lot of energy for that. Um, and you got to bring like the enthusiasm and man, that was tough. Like, especially near the end of interview like cycle, like bringing the energy is tough. So be prepared about like the city, know, know a little bit about the city, what's going on in the city, what's going on with the program. I think your research is invaluable and then bring the energy. That was like my, the two things that I realized that are helpful during interview season. And have lots and lots of questions ready because I've had interviewers who were 
like didn't ask any questions. It was just like ask questions for half an hour straight. And I was like, I'm tired, but okay, I'm going to try to, you know, some of it you're like, oh, I did this and this and this uh, in med school, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm also interested in keep doing this during residency. So what do you have that can help me? So it's like an opportunity for you to like lead the interview a little bit so that you can highlight your strengths. But at the same time, be ready to ask a lot of questions. I think that was the most annoying part of interviews for me, just having to ask the same questions again and again. And like, you have like five interviews in the day and like by the last one you've probably had all of your questions answered and they're still asking you if you have more questions you repeat some it's another perspective that you're going to get to hear and you know you can say that like I've already asked this question a couple of times but I would love to get your you know opinion on this what do you see you know as the strength of this program etc this could be a controversial thing for some people but I did it for some of my schools during interviews is that I um, if I felt like the interview was going pretty well, you know, and I was vibing with the, the residents and I was vibing with the PD and the APD, um, whenever I would hit like the chief resident room or one of the upper class residents, I would say like, hey, like I have, I'm going to be driving back to Fort Worth, my family's from Fort Worth, I'll be driving back to Fort Worth, um, you know, if I pass by the school on the way, would you mind if I popped in? And so I did a couple of, I did a, right, or I was going on a trip to Florida. And so I went to Tulane or whatever, you know, and like I popped in and then like those programs, like, you know, like, you know, like that get, just shows a lot more uh, enthusiasm, you know what I mean? And the willingness to actually like show face in person because, and also for me, it gives me a lot of information because if I don't have boots on the ground, like, I mean, it's great that the online interviewing and stuff is nice because it doesn't cost as much money and, you know, you don't have to like move it. You, you can do classes while you're doing it. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I'm a pretty simple person. I like to see stuff in person and know what it looks like. Like, I want to see what the hospital, like, I want to see what it smells like outside, you know, is there like a grease trap from like the, you know, Chinese restaurant down the street? I don't know, but I want to know. So I'm going to go check it out. Um, and that, and that ended up helping me out a lot. Um, but also like when you're doing your interviews, guys, especially if you've done, uh, if you're in a specialty where research is a thing, you got to know your research projects. Like I, it's fine to be fifth author on something, you know, right before the PD. Cause like you sneezed and he was like, Oh, you can be on this paper. That's fine. But you got to know what the paper says, because if they start grilling you on the paper and you put it down, they're all proud of it. And you don't know anything about it. It's not a good look. And some people, a lot, well, most, a lot of people don't give a, don't give a, you know, whatever about research, but some people really do. And you don't want to be on the bad side of people who do because that they can burn you on that. They'll be like, oh, well, like we're an academic program. We're research intensive. And this person doesn't even know the first thing about the project they put down that they were a second author on. It's not a good look. And you can get burned on that. I got asked pointedly, like um, at my first interview and at my third interview, like the first interviewer was like, all right. He's like, hey, nice to meet you. Sorry, I'm late. Tell me about this. And so I just had to like, and I had to spend three minutes waxing poetic about a project I did three years ago. You know what I mean? So like, and if I hadn't have gone through before my interviews started and started reading my stuff again, you know, I could have gotten burned right there out the gate and that could have been, you know, cookies from the first thing. So just be aware that like anything you put, also know your hobbies. If you say you play jazz guitar, and you don't know what a two, five, one turnaround is, that's gonna be a red flag. If the if you know jazz guitar, then you know what that is. And if you don't, there's your problem. Don't put it down. If you say, I like to, I like to go run, and they ask you what your favorite brand of running shoe is, and you don't know them because you don't actually run. You see what I'm saying? Like know the stuff. Like if you say you play chess and you don't know what a queen sacrifice is, you don't probably play chess that good. You know, like 
I'm sure Adam can speak to that. I don't know too much about chess, but <laughs> that's that's kind of what I think. I don't know. Like, if I don't know it, don't put it down because they're going to ask you and your hobbies for a lot of these people. They're, that's all they want to talk to you about because they've already read your application. They know what your research was. They know what your scores were. They know where you fall already. They don't need to find out any more about that. You telling them, you know, potentially like a sob story why you did or did not do good on this test or you did or did not honor this rotation, they probably don't care at the end of the day. What they want to know is like who you are and can I sit up with you at 3 a.m. at night? And your hobbies will probably tell me more about that than, I mean, like when I do my med school, like I did the admissions committee in med school, I'm much more interested in the person as a person than I am about their C that they got in orgo. I don't care. How many times have you guys done orgo in uh, med school? Zero. Like maybe once for biochem, one time. You know what I mean? It's not probably the thing that's going to make you or make you or make you or break you. But what will make you or break you is whether or not I get along with you for potentially five to seven years if you're doing neurosurge. Sorry, soapbox, I'm leaving. Yeah, I was asked about my hobbies in pretty much every single one of my interviews. I'll just say real, and I would say real quick, just in regards to your hobbies for ERAS, try to dress them up a little bit. Don't just put like cooking, hiking, watching Netflix, like be specific. Like, what do you like to cook? Where do you like to go hiking? Like, what kind of shows do you watch on Netflix? Because that does come up quite a bit. It came up in almost every single one of my interviews. Yeah, exactly. So just... (laughs) try to dress up your hobbies and be specific and try to not be like super basic with them. On that note, we will open it up. Oh, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Yeah. I mean, like I will, I will say like the hobby thing comes up. Like I, I, I was reading doing it and during interview season, like, like all the books and I put that in my, in my hobby section. And um, it was a program that I really wanted to go to and it was a panel interview. So it was very intimidating. Like four people were interviewing me at the same time. And the first question I got from the person that was leading the panel interview was like, oh, like what book are you on? And like, have you watched the, have you watched the, the Dune movie? And like, it was a very specific question. And I was like, oh, they've read this book and they know what they're talking about. And if I had lied, it would have completely ruined my whole interview. And so you can, don't embellish or lie that much because it can come and bite you. <laughs> That's yeah, don't lie. That's a big one, actually. I yeah, do not they'll catch you in that lie. These people have had entirely too many years to get really good at a very specific set of things. They're gonna know. I think we're gonna open it up to questions from everyone else that's in here. Um, feel free to ask any questions related to med school, residency applications, anything like that. We are all open to answering anything. You can put it in the chat or you can just unmute and shout out your question. Uh, I have a question, hi. (laughs) Okay, so this year, a lot of specialties are doing the whole token thing. I think like only a couple did it last year and now like almost all of them are doing it this year. So do you guys have any like suggestions on like, I don't know, strategies on like who we should be giving it to? Cause like, I don't know, I've been talking to some people and they're like, oh, like obviously Harvard's going to get everyone's token. And then if you don't give, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know how it like works, but if you have any like suggestion on how to do, go about it. And also I think some of them are giving you like a silver and a gold token. Like I know OB is doing that. So I don't know, any advice on how to go about it? I'm going to practice uh, my interview I'm- skills and I don't know, so I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I think I'm the only specialty that had tokens in a supplemental application this past year. So I guess I can answer. Um, this is tough. Like the, ours was like 
really sprung on pretty late. I think it was IM, Derm, and general surgery were the ones that did the supplemental application. And we had five tokens, at least for IM. And I just picked programs that I liked, honestly, like that I thought were reaches um, or competitive. And I threw a token at them. And I didn't really care if other people were throwing tokens at them either, because I think it's every program that's getting going to get a decent amount of tokens thrown at them. So it's just at least helps programs like narrow down like people that are super interested. Um, personally, I didn't see a correlation between interviews and throw and the tokens. Even like um, after the application cycle, a lot of programs came out and said like, oh, we're not even looking at tokens this year. So I think for the, for the most part, the supplemental application is kind of be kind of them collecting data for future years and seeing how it kind of pans out. But I will say, at least spend time on your supplemental application and try to highlight things that are important to you. And, um, but yeah, tokens, like, I mean, pick signal, signal programs that you're interested in at the ultimately. And um, maybe, you know, if you really, really want to go to program for sure, give them a token. Like, I mean, that's, I think it's a pretty simple strategy. Um, I don't know how much it's going to like weigh in the application cycle, but um, ENT has been doing it for a really long time and they've found some good correlations. Um, they kind of were the ones that piloted it a long time ago. Um, so I guess, um, see if you can find some data on that, like typing like ENT token or signaling preferences or whatever and see what shows up on Google. But um, yeah, that's kind of my take. I, I think I got an interview from one of the programs that I signaled, but the rest four, maybe I didn't. Um, yeah. Sounds good, thank you. Hi guys, um, I was wondering, so I know ways are obviously a really good way of showing that you would be interested in that geographical region. Is that is like stuff that you did before med school, like undergrad or even gap year stuff? Cause I did a lot of stuff out of Texas before med school. So does that have any weight at all or do they just care about what you did in med school? I think that's kind of hard to say. I would say that like, if you went to undergrad outside of Texas or you did stuff outside of Texas, it does show that you are willing to leave Texas, which I think is the biggest thing. Um, because when I did my away, like my one of my main purposes was to show that I was geographically available, kind of like Steph mentioned at the beginning, it was literally just to show that I was willing to leave Texas, which a lot of people um, don't believe when you're from Texas. I would say like doing undergrad outside of Texas is always helpful. Um, doing any kind of research during the summers outside of Texas is helpful as well because it shows that you're willing to go to different institutions. Um, you can put gap year stuff in there. I would just caution with trying to put a, like if you're trying to put like activities or things that weren't super big on your ERAS application prior to med school, um, unless they were like big research projects that you did get like substantial outcomes from, I would put that on there. But like if it was something that you worked in a lab, but you didn't really do any posters or papers or anything that I would probably say, don't put that on your application. Um, I think that would just be my two cents. I don't know if anyone else has any, anything different. Uh, it depends on, I think with the research stuff. So like, um, I don't know. So for the research thing, right, there's like publications, which is like, if you're submitting something as a publication, you need a DOI number right? Like have it be peer reviewed. There's a separate thing in ERS for publications that are not peer reviewed, right? So those are two different things. And some people who, some people like will have research that's not necessarily published in like, uh, I don't know, like JAMA or whatever. 
right and that's still valid it's just like you have to go through like extra steps of making sure it's validated and hopefully the person who you read your work with is somebody who has had publications in the past because that gives you more credibility i think when you're reviewing an application um like for instance if you and i think like when it comes to the publication stuff like different stuff has different weight right like so you can have a research experience like for instance for my for my application example i built a research database at southwestern during my first summer, a lot of people have done stuff out of besides myself, like my people I did work with, people who came after, people are still doing it, mining it for data and then writing papers out of it. So like I put that down. That wasn't technically a publication. I didn't publish the database, but projects were published out of the database. So you bet your, bet your, you bet your butt I was going to reference that and make sure that was known. And then when I went on my away rotation, um, funnily enough, Cedars happened to be doing a research starting a research uh, database is very similar to the one that I created at Southwestern with my mentor. So, you know what I mean? Like I already have experience in that realm. So don't, don't sleep, don't, 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 don't like discount your own research just because it wasn't necessarily published or whatever. Try to, you know, try to like utilize the skill set that you have. Like for instance, if you're really good at using R and you're really good at statistics, like advertise the shit out of that because that's great. And a lot of people aren't like, I don't know how to write an R. You know what I mean? I'm barely an Excel person. So like when it comes to stats, like if you're really good at statistics, like there are people who get paid to do this as a job. And if you can bring that to the table as a resident, and once you write a program in R, you know, you can just do tweaks. And then if you're really good with red cap and learning how to export it, I'm sorry, this is research tangent. But if you're, if you become really good at some of these really small things, um, you can put, please put those in your research section as research experiences. Like, you know, if you spend a summer learning how to run a statistics or run statistics for projects, like highlight that because that's a really unique thing. And not a lot of people have that. Like a lot of every, like a lot of people wrote a case report, but not a lot of people can say I ran the stats for six different papers. You know what I mean? Like that's something that you should highlight. And then like, you know, and there's tons of other things that are translatable there in that research world. I think that like, don't shortchange yourself on your research if you put the work in, but don't BS some stuff if you didn't do it, because then they'll call you on it. Okay, thank you. It was mainly like a gap year program I did that was also out of the state and also my undergrad. It wasn't really any research, but that's all great advice. Thank you. Yo, I mean, I think for that, like just regional stuff, I'm, I'm not 100% on that. I, um, I did a shot in the dark for my regional stuff and it worked out, so I can't really speak to that. I would say I it's think- kind of a toss up when you're doing ERAS, they'll like actually see it and take that into consideration. But the first question during an interview is usually tell me about yourself. And if you do happen to interview in a place where you spent some time before med school, I would definitely say just like talk about that during your tell me about yourself. And I think it just comes down to the quality of the experience. Like if it about, if it means something to you, then include it. That's that's kind of my 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 question that I ask myself for every experience. Thank you. Any more questions from anyone? Um, also, if anybody, I don't know if anybody else wants to, but if you guys, I'll put my email in the chat. And if you guys want to see like a sample iris, whatever, like I'm done with the application cycle. I can just like, you know, I'll like remove my like AMC number and stuff or whatever. And I can like, or if you have a specific part that you want to see, I can just like screenshot that and send it to you. Uh, I'm not saying like, this is not like, 
don't get me wrong this is not a license to copy it or whatever but like I mean it's all going to come down to be basically the same crap at the end of the day it's just your experiences here or there it's just if you just want a template let me know all right well I think we'll end it there I'm also open to sending anyone my CV personal statement ERAS application whatever you need um and um also just looking at Ray's email I would just say create a separate email for ERAS that is like the number one thing that you should do is just create a separate email. Don't use your school email. Don't use like your personal email that like all of your junk mail goes to just create a separate one that you can monitor because it will make your life so much easier. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll put our contact information for anyone that is like willing to have people contact them. There should also have been something that was sent out to your classes um, with everyone's emails on it that were like willing to be contacted for each specialty. Those are our school emails. Um, and we probably won't be checking them much. So you can also just text us or um, use our other emails, but feel free to reach out if you need anything. But thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you. And that concludes our Coffee To Go podcast. And we hope to see you here for next week's episode.